Welcome to Sung's Garage. Now this is more than just a place to work on cars. This is a place where I'm able to connect with people, talk story, and share them with the world. Today, we have a special guest on What to Watch, Bao Nguyen, who is the director of the recent ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Be Water, which explores the life and legacy of Bruce Lee. Now he tells us the project took him about five years to complete from conception to the world premiere at Sundance. But we first discuss his filmmaking career in Vietnam and how he evolved to become a better filmmaker. Yeah, like, especially like the grip team, like if you need anything built, they will just like go and cut down like some bamboo and build it. And for me, it's worrisome for sure in a safety level, but you're like, if you need something done, they'll get it done. Um, and so I, I think, you know, as you are saying, something like the cadence is different, but then you kind of, you try to like take uh, the best part of someone's like work culture and bring it onto your project. Then we discussed during the process of the making of the documentary, what Bao learned from Bruce Lee personally. You know, he's this model of not just representation, but he's like a model of Asian masculinity, not even Asian masculinity, just to say masculinity and kind of confidence. And I think when we talk about masculinity, we don't talk about vulnerability nowadays. And I think, you know, when you can kind of look at that and not feel shame when you're being vulnerable or you're having any fear, then there's, there's a sort of connectedness to that. And of course, we had to ask Bao if Bruce Lee was into cars. I think he, he eventually, Bruce Lee eventually bought like a, a 56 Ford um, and he thought it was a Cadillac, which, uh, which, which Leroy always laughs about. Um, <laughs> And we're also joined by our What to Watch guru, David, as our co-host today. Hope you enjoy. All right, y'all be good. What's up, Bao? How you doing? Hi, Sam. What's up? How are you? How are you? Hey, good. thanks for doing this. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for yeah. having me on. It's great. Absolutely. Um, where are you based out of? I just moved to LA like a month and a half ago. So I'm in the arts district down in downtown. Oh, cool. How do you um, like it? It's chill. It's, you know, I, I was always wanting to be in this neighborhood because I used to live in New York and I wanted a neighborhood that I could still sort of walk around and like have like uh, restaurants and bars that were easily accessible and just have more of a neighborhood feel without feeling too residential. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, and I have a few friends who like live across the street from me. So that's kind of cool as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you originally from New York? Is that where you grew up? No, I grew up, um, right outside DC in Maryland. And then I lived in New York, uh, for like 12 years. I went to NYU and then lived there after I graduated. And then I lived in Vietnam for like six years. Wow. And then um, I was just living in London last year because that's where we were editing the film. How long were you there? I was there for like seven months. Wow. Yeah. But I, I mean, I loved it. I really, I think it's like kind of the quintessential international city because like people from Asia, from the, you know, the uh, Western hemisphere, they all kind of converge into this place. And it's been that place for centuries right just like this mecca and hub of trade yeah. um 
So I, I mean, I, I, I hope to go back one day. I don't know. I think that'll be a while. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a great city. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. I, I, I was there for Fast and Furious 6. Um, and it's probably one of the best cities I've gone to. I mean, I, I pretty much lived in, uh, in uh, near Leicester Square. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was a great the middle place. Things then, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it was good Chinese food, you know, in Chinatown, you know. Yeah. I mean, like I the Indian back, food, uh, the Chinese food is amazing. Yeah, it is. It's one of the best. I mean, I, I didn't think, you know, I, I, I would assume it did, but then I just didn't know it existed there. Because, you know, I'm in, a, uh, I'm in California, so I'm near, I live pretty much in the, the new Chinatown called uh, San Gabriel. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about it. Yeah. I, I try to go get out there when I don't want to drive down to the OC for Vietnamese food. Right, right, right. Oh, well, you know, we have Golden Deli, which is pretty popular here. Yeah. Oh, Golden Deli is the best. It is. It's really it good. It is so good. This I, episode I, might be you guys describing, like, telling me all your L.A. spots since I just moved here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Vietnamese food here is on point because uh, I think it's been – you know enough time where you know the 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 children of the the parents that ran just like a typical restaurant you know they've taken it and made a fusion and they really you know applied like you know local cuisine in southern california kind of fusion so there's some like amazing vietnamese restaurants out here even in long beach i think one of the best vietnamese restaurants i've ever been in my life is actually in long beach it's in a little strip. oh wow i'll get you the name to this place but my friend alex z a writer. Um, okay. Yeah, I know Alex. Yeah, yeah. He he used to live in Long Beach, and he took me to his spot. And he's from the Bay, so he knows you know Vietnamese food. But he goes, "This is the best ever," and I'm like, "Nah, man." <laughs> That's what everyone Great, says, right? Right. I mean, Dustin Nguyen took me around to eat Vietnamese food in um, Westminster, so we had the best. But then this place, it just it kills it because it's it's truly. French, Vietnamese, Southern California fusion. Man, yeah. why does that have to be so far away from me? I know. <laughs> well, th that's why it's worth the drive. Yeah, I guess know? so. Yeah. If you like it's, it. Yeah. Small place, open kitchen. Just, It's just awesome, man. Hey, but sure how is the street food in um, Vietnam? Did you eat? Was it not street food, but how was the food overall in Vietnam? Did it blow your mind? Yeah. I mean, the thing about Vietnam that's interesting when like, comparing it to like, Vietnamese food here is that there's in terms of like I guess called traditional Vietnamese food there's like a progression right um, because if you look at like traditional Vietnamese food here it's kind of stuck in the 1970s or 1975 because those ingredients and those ideas are from like my parents generation and they are not willing to change it mm. but I mean as you were saying there's like a, a new generation of like young chefs in America who are making like Asian American food a thing and like Vietnamese American food. So that's, that's the stuff that I love because, you know, the ingredients are really fresh and they're like using like kind of not to say a Western palate, but just like these ingredients is that have been raised like, you know, uh, you know, uh, free cage chickens and like free range chickens and things like that. And then in Vietnam, like it's, it's really different in terms of ingredients. So I think like there's, it's definitely good and cheap. Like you get the value, but I don't know if it's like, like people 
say that the best Vietnamese food in the world is in Westminster because of that kind of confluence of the best ingredients and kind of techniques. But in Vietnam, it's just like, there's just like that atmosphere too that you get eating street food that I always enjoy and just like the sights and smells of sitting on the, out in the city, especially in Saigon. Um, but yeah, I would say like, for me, it's like when I see certain sanitary things of, of street food, I'm like, I want to be down to eat this, but like, they're just like leaving out meat for like 24 oh. hours in the hot sun type of thing. And I was like, I mean, oh. I guess I've been going back to Vietnam since 1992. So like my stomach is good for it, but yeah, yeah, I know yeah. like friends who come over like the, for the first time and, you know, I take them to a spot and they are immediately sick for the next two weeks and I feel oh, really bad. No. Because it's like that's their whole trip. They're just like throwing up or in the bathroom. Oh, no. for weeks, so. oh man, there goes their vacation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you have the third world stomach. I have that too. Like I can, I can eat yeah. street food yeah. and be fine. Yeah, but yeah. I feel sorry for those people that don't. Well, have we'll that. be good missionaries. We can just go and eat wherever we want. <laughs> yeah. we'll be okay. Be okay. Yeah. So your Vietnamese is pretty fluent then, I guess, right? Uh, did you speak it at home? Yeah, I speak like a 10-year-old, I would say. Um, <laughs> so food level and bathroom. Food high, about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's easy. But my yeah. parents, when I was growing up, they stopped. Um, when I was, I only spoke Vietnamese up until the age of five. I didn't know English until I was five. And I was born in the States because, you know, I would only interact with my parents and my family for the most part. And then when I went to school, that's when um, I started learning English in kindergarten. And it was kind of a, a whole journey because they would take me after school. Like I remember like basically being in like the ESL teachers, like uh-huh. dark room and just being crammed with like all this English language. And I was just, like, it felt like an interrogation really. Oh, and, yeah. and I think it might've like traumatized me where I started really losing my Vietnamese. And uh, like my parents would encourage me to speak English as much as I can at home. So, you know, I wouldn't have any semblance of sort of my Vietnamese accent. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so it kind of like my Vietnamese, uh, you know, training in terms of the language stopped when I was like six or seven in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents like were, my dad was Catholic. So there was like those Sunday schools that, they would try to teach me Vietnamese, but I was like, so against that. I was trying to like rebel first against like the idea of like institutionalized religion. And then like the idea like, Oh, I have to learn this language because wait, like, wait, Sundays, wait, 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 as a five-year-old, you were rebelling against institutionalized <laughs> religion. No, no, no. Later, later on in my life. As a ten, All as five-year-olds do. Wow. You started early. Why wow, you were so aware and in touch as a five-year-old. Amazing. As a 10 year old, I guess. Yeah, as a 10 year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I have a, a similar story with the ESL class. Um, we lived in Seattle briefly because my stepfather was in the military, but my stepfather is American. So I didn't even speak Korean in my house. And my mom's Korean, but like yourself, you know, my, you know, my mom was really into making sure that I assimilated and, you know, Korean language was not, you know, part of, the, you know, the dinner talk. It was English. And then, I was probably like going into third grade and for some weird reason, the teacher put me into the, e- like they had a, I, I think they just started their ESL class because it was, it was in Spanaway, 
So Spanaway, in, in Spanaway, Washington, near Seattle. And I don't think they had many foreigners at the time. So they created, they had to have the CSL program and they needed to fill it, right? So for some reason, all of a sudden I had to take this ESL class. So I'm in there. And if you got, you know, the answers right, they gave you like prizes, like Hot Wheel cars and candy and chips. Mm. And then they, the teacher realized that I didn't even speak Korean. I, I only spoke English. And she's like, why are you here? I'm like, I don't know. And then I, I, that's where I learned how to hustle because I was like, but I think I need to stay here and take this class because I was getting all this free shit, right? <laughs> all this candy. So I took the class. I stayed in the class and kind of played dumb and took this ESL class and I would go back to the regular classes with all this candy and all these toys. And it was the stupidest thing. It was like, you know, repetition. It's like, I see blue balloon. And then she would, I would have to repeat it. And as a kid that only spoke English, that it, it was confusing. The fact that I was in there. And I think there was like a kid from like Nigeria who spoke no English at all. Right. And so there's probably three kids in there. And so it's, 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 it's interesting that, that school at that time just felt like they had to put me in there because I was one of the few minorities. And then the third grader learned how to hustle in there. It was like, ooh, there's opportunity and I'll stay here. So I wonder if at, as a third grader, guys, if I learned how to manipulate the welfare system. <laughs> yeah. I think that's almost instinctive for any third grader, if you ask me. <laughs> or is it the Asian in me? Is it the it Asian side? It's DNA, I think. Yeah, sometimes. it's kind of like the perfect, you know, confluence of everything, for sure. <laughs> but even as limited with your Vietnamese, I, I'm not sure you say like 10-year-old, like, you know, going to, back to Vietnam and, and I guess making films there, was it hard to do that? I mean, depending on how much you have to directors you know ask for things or do things there as like you know with the language you know the you know level that you have i i mean there's certain like film terminology that's just turned into you know there's only an english word for it or it derived oh. from like a french word um but i mean my vietnamese is good enough to direct but people would think I'm like really adorable director because I spoke like a 10 year old. <laughs> that is funny. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I needed to be like very more um, uh, dictatorial, to, you know, for lack of a better term, I would speak English and um, just to be more concise and things like that. And once I, you know, when, it's in a way like when you hear languages, like when I hear my parents speak Vietnamese in a certain accent to me, it feels like I'm being yelled at. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. So that's how I felt in a way with um, when I spoke English to someone and, you know, the tone would be different because, again, my tone when I'm speaking Vietnamese sounds like a 10 year old. So it's just like, oh, you know, how the director is so adorable. Right. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you like direct, you know, like even uh, like either the actors or the people you you work with that, you know, I guess I guess depending on uh, I mean, making uh yeah you know decisions on set you know do you you wouldn't have a like a translator or anything like that right or well i mean i would work with like an ad that spoke english and oh, vietnamese okay. so if there's like anything that is like kind of nuanced um then i would i would talk to my ad to kind of just help make sure that 
any actor actress is clear on that right right and like as far as the industry goes is it like pretty thriving as far as uh, you know making films in vietnam because i i i think there's another one is it called the third wife is that yeah is that from vietnam yeah that's from yeah. vietnam yeah i was gonna watch that i was very it looks very beautiful i was like man like you know this is something i've not seen you know movies like this from Vietnam. And I was like, okay, you know, I might have to investigate a little bit more. Yeah, that movie, uh, it's well, my friend, Ash Mayford directed it. And actually my my niece is the lead actress in it. So it's a, what? Oh, kind of a small world. Yeah. Oh man, uh, it is there's, a small There's world. a big controversy behind that film though. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get deep into it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I mean, so I first worked in Vietnam. I was telling you, I I been going to Vietnam since like 1992 so when I was pretty young but the first time I worked there was 2010 for oh, a friend's film um he's a well sorry I should say was a Vietnamese American director Stefan Gauger mm -hmm. um and he did this film called Saigon uh Yo which is like this hip-hop film and I was uh second unit DP on that film and and it, you know Back in 2010, there were about like eight local films being released and made a uh -huh. year in Vietnam. And now um, it's like 60. Oh, wow, so that's it's a lot. grown exponentially in terms of not just like production, but also viewership and building new theaters. And that's why, I mean, I don't know if Anderson's told you, but we just started like a film company called East Films uh -huh. um, that's trying to like take Vietnamese films and, and really um, presented to a larger audience, but also like nurture younger Vietnamese filmmakers who have mm -hmm. stories that don't necessarily work in the typical Vietnamese studio system. Right. What about uh, like learning filmmaking in, in Vietnam? Is there, a, is there a school? I mean, like just because of my ignorance, do you have to go outside the you know country to come back, you know, and ed educate yourself outside and come back and, do the film, you know, uh, uh, you know, filmmaking, or is there, uh, you know, schools to do that there? There are some, like just a couple of film uh -huh. schools, and they're, you know, Vietnam being a communist country, it's still mm -hmm. kind of like a very Marxist system in many mm -hmm. ways in terms of education. Um, but there are students who like get like Fulbright scholarships and study at like USC or right. like some of the big film schools in the states. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, honestly, the internet has really um, made uh, film schools much more democratic in film education, right? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So I think Vietnam's um, like population is super mm -hmm. young, like uh, I think like 70% or something, don't quote me on this, like are under the age of 35, like something crazy. Um, so they're, uh, they were born like, you know, when, once they were born, the internet already happened. And yeah, uh, so that's been a lot of people's education, which is great. Um, but yeah, that's course, how I learned. People, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, that's Bob, how I recently learned more. Hey, Bob, do you think, do you think there's a difference between um, the filmmaking cadence in Vietnam compared to the U.S.? You know, because when I work overseas, the Japanese crew, you know, it's different from the American crew and, you know, the just cadence is different. Did you notice anything? Totally. I mean, 
Um, like before I moved to Vietnam, I was living in New York, which even in comparison to many other cities in the US, there's there's a certain kind of like go, you know, go-getter attitude and just like pretty on point in terms of like schedule and like working in like 15 minute increments in Vietnam. There's like a much more like laissez-faire attitude towards things. Um, and you know, for me as an outsider coming into a new environment, I, I'm always like, for me, I have to adapt to that environment instead of me trying to impose like my style in many ways. And I, for better or worse, there's a lot of good things about Vietnam too. Like the resourcefulness of the Vietnamese people. I mean, that's something that, um, it's incomparable to anywhere in the world, I feel like. Uh, and like, there's a funny story of how like there was an action film and one of the actresses like she's playing like a stunt woman and her heel breaks right um and it just actually the shoe just like completely it's like a high top boot and just and completely falls apart and so vietnamese crew they basically just got like some gaffers tape <laughs> and just like covered the entire foot and this this woman was expected to do like stunts and kick around with just this foot but with you know they just had to get it shot and people yeah. you know didn't even think twice about doing that it was just yeah. like okay that would never work over in most countries oh, not uh, now, for yeah. many reasons um so yeah like especially like the grip team like if you need anything built they will just like go and cut down like some bamboo and build it <laughs> and for me it's worrisome for sure in a safety level but you're like, if you need something done, they'll get it done. Um, and so I, I think, you know, as you're saying, something like the cadence is different, but then you kind of, you try to like take uh, the best part of someone's like work culture and bring it onto your project. Right. How did, how did working in Vietnam um, elevate your, you as a director? What did you, what positive things did you take from there where, Maybe if you didn't travel and work there and stay in the U.S., maybe you would have never learned. Um, I mean, it's I learned a lot of good things, and apparently I brought a lot of bad things back with me to the States. Um, I remember I was, like, shooting this scene. We didn't have, like, a scene down in downtown L.A. for just a short that I was directing. And um, we were supposed to shoot the scene, like, in one location, but just while I was walking to that location, I just found another location that looks so much more beautiful. So I was just like told the DP and told the actor, just like, let's just shoot it here. But we had no permission. And my producer just got so pissed at me because like the, you know, the, um, the people that we were renting the space from actually specifically told me that we couldn't shoot in that location <laughs> like while we were scouting. And I was just like, you know, for me, I always kind of follow the mantra of like, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, but in, in this case, we we didn't even have permission. Like I, uh -huh. I shouldn't have done it. And my, my, I, I, you know, we got the locations person in trouble. And I felt so bad because of that. And in Vietnam, you just, it doesn't matter. Like you can, I don't want to create this stereotype that there, you can kind of pay things under the table in Vietnam, but you can, like if you meet someone who's in charge of something, it's like, you know, you just look the other way type of thing. And I think that um, that's kind of the, 
maybe the bad part I brought back <laughs> to the well, nobody died, right? I mean, no one died, and, and the, the person still has their job at this location. And it's it's actually he messaged me like a month ago saying how much he loved B Water. So I was like, okay, so we're cool, uh, we're cool. Oh, um, there you go. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> but I yeah. think you know, I think for me, just there's like that resourcefulness again. I think we're right now in in when you're making films in America, you're thinking about all these kind of external forces and you kind of lose your creativity, your like independent yeah. spirit. So mm, this is a yeah. film, I didn't direct it, but I produced it called Rob. That's coming out, it's actually being released this month in, in uh, Vietnam. Oh. And this director worked on it for eight years. Um, it's first, first feature, it's somewhat like autobiographical and he basically, you know, he was shooting commercials and he would um, shoot commercials during the week. And then the money that he made from commercials, he would go out on the weekends and shoot his film. And so mm -hmm. it was a, it was a two year like production over 89 days. And I was just like, that's the stuff like from old school, like Cassavetti's days or like maybe like Spike Lee as NYU days. And it's like, you don't see that as much in, in Hollywood in the industry. And that just really inspired me is because like he had the story he wanted to tell and he's gonna make it no matter what, like eight right. years, like working on this project. And yeah. um, I mean, we were lucky enough where it, it premiered at Busan last year and it actually oh. won the top prize at Busan. Um, oh, wow. And and we were just so, I mean, for me, I was just so happy that um, this young director could show his film and show it outside Vietnam and have like this, these accolades at the same time, I should tell you that the film was banned in Vietnam initially oh. um, because uh, you know, you have to go through these like protocols of censorship and, and, and things. And, um, but there's, there's kind of these unwritten rules where if you're planning to just play it internationally, um, you, you can kind of bypass the censorship, like uh, especially if he, he's like a local Vietnamese filmmaker. So you, tend, you don't you you don't have to um, send the script uh, to to the censorship. So we sent it to Busan, and then we didn't necessarily send it to the government first. And they heard that we got into Busan, and then you're like, you cannot play it. And um, Busan being a great festival, or like they had a film a couple years ago that the Korean government asked them not to play and they oh. still played it. So they were telling us like, Oh, well, if we're not going to listen to the Korean government, right? We don't care about the Vietnamese government. And I was like, that's, that's badass of you guys as a film festival. And that's so, good. yeah. And then it won the top prize and like over time there's been kind of this sort of mythology in the film community about ROM. And so finally this year, um, this month, uh, we got permission to release it. So that's crazy. You know what I love about this story? That story is that the, the the filmmaker Ram, you know, not only inspired you artistically, but the spirit of just being innovative and going out there and the can-do attitude, right? That he has to work the side hustle to go, you know, to create his story and his art. And then after his own country is like denying it, so it's trying to stop him. But then the art speaks for itself. And then, and I, I listen to that story, I go, wow, what a, what a great person, a great man to be inspired from, uh, by, and 
and shadow and you know and i'm always looking for those type of role models in my life mm -hmm. and, and so you know my next question for you Bao, is like you know we're you know we're we're so excited to talk about this bruce lee documentary that you directed and as an asian male the bruce lee that i know is i feel like has been manufactured by a machine and this this mythology and a lot of it I don't relate with. I'm not a martial art artist. And I always wondered what the mystique of Bruce Lee was, not just for Asian men, but you know, all races. There, there was something that, that drew people to him. And I don't think it was just the martial arts. That was the thing that got us there, right? But then there was something that he embodied. And that's what I would really love to you know, kind of pick your brain about, is that as you got to know the man as a filmmaker, you know, did he inspire you? Did he disappoint you? Was it one of those things that you should never meet your heroes? And I think I would love like an honest, like, you know, non-sugar-coated, like, you know, perspective of who was this guy and what can we take? You know, I don't need drama. I just want, you know, what can I learn from that guy? Yeah, for me, I mean, honestly, I wasn't like the hugest Bruce Lee fan in the world when I was growing up. I didn't necessarily like, know all his films and study martial arts um it was really just like the memory of of seeing enter the dragon on like saturday television that uh i saw someone who you know relatively looked like me um kicking ass being uh the lead in a film because at that time i grew up in the 80s um so i was born after way after bruce lee passed away like i think my memory of seeing myself on screen was short round in Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. That character was yeah. like, because he was, you know, he was still a young kid, but then he had this accent and he was like this comic relief of the film. Right. And I, yeah. I watched Indiana Jones and I wish I could have looked at short round as being my hero, but Harrison Ford was my hero for sure in that film. Sure. So then sure. when I saw Bruce Lee, I was like, okay, this is the, He's the lead, right? And that means a lot. And I think I don't take for granted the idea of representation, the value of representation, because I just don't see enough of, of, of people who look like me on screen. And I think people who are like fighting back against that idea of representation are just so used to seeing themselves on so many different levels, so many multifaceted levels. Um, and, and I think Bruce Lee became a symbol in that way. I didn't go out and try to like, uh, learn martial arts or even go out and watch his films. I think it was just a kind of a lasting memory in my mind of like, okay, there's someone out there like that, but it, th he was the only one. And for a long time, I kind of, it, you know, that memory faded because, you know, it was, it was something that it was just kind of uh, an exception to the rule. And then dragon, you know, the Bruce Lee story came out and um, that became my idea of who Bruce Lee was because that was like, people weren't making uh, multifaceted stories about Asians. And that was another example. Like I didn't even think of Bruce Lee as kind of a, a real figure. I, I thought of him as a hero in a film through, through Dragon, right? Like Jason Scott Lee was yeah. who I looked up to in many ways. And yeah. I, I think that film does a good job of like, showing the the relationship with Linda and Bruce because it's based on their book. But a lot of things around it are built around the same mythology that you're talking about, Sung. 
And um, I mean, for better or worse, that became my generation's version of Bruce Lee. Like it wasn't watching Enter the Dragon or watching the films, but okay, oh, who's Bruce Lee? He's this, that, and the other from the plot points in, in uh, Dragon. And, you know, again, that the symbolism of Bruce Lee carried on into like my life, especially going into film and thinking of like who, who really represents and, you know, has, has the power to kind of be that um, Asian American male. And even to this day, you know, even with people like Jackie Chan, Jet Li, I mean, they're Asian and we have to kind of remember that, that they made it big in Asia and then they crossed over to America. But like to have an Asian American of that stature um, was, yeah, so something that was always lingering in me. But I, I realized like I didn't know him as a person, right? I didn't know the human being Bruce Lee. And for me to just think of him as a symbol, I, I don't think it does the story justice. It does the mythology of Bruce Lee justice, right? And it's funny because one of the reasons I wanted to do this film, and it doesn't seem related, but like President Obama visited Vietnam um, when I was living there. And a friend of mine, a filmmaker friend of mine, asked a question during this town hall. And I was, I was there too. And he asked, he asked like, you know, in your book, you talk about your drug use, your marijuana use. And he's talking to the president of the United States in front of this whole crowd. It's, he's in a communist country. And people are like gasping, like just, the air gets sucked out of this room. And he, he's saying, you know, I asked this question because now you're standing here as a president of the United States. You're, you're, you talk about your drug use, you talk about doing marijuana when you're in college. There's so many Vietnamese kids who are, you know, getting high, who don't feel like their life is going anywhere. But you're an example of someone who, who you know, was in a similar situation as, as them, but you're, now you're standing here as kind of the leader of the free world. So what do you have to say about that part of your life and why is it important? And so I think the best part about like unpacking mythology and like trying to be like our heroes is like what you said, just like figuring out their vulnerabilities, their, what makes them human. And I think, yeah, Bruce has been seen in such a mythological way. Like I wanted to, you know, he's this model of not just representation, but he's like a model of Asian masculinity, not even Asian masculinity, just to say masculinity and kind of confidence. And I think when we talk about masculinity, we don't talk about vulnerability nowadays. And I think, you know, when you can kind of look at that and not feel shame when you're being vulnerable or you're having any fear, then there's, there's a sort of connectedness to that. And so, you know, the film, we don't get into like sensational parts about his life because I don't think that was a story I wanted to tell, but I wanted to unpack some ideas of just like, Oh, he, he feared growing old. Like that was a scene that we mentioned right before he passed away. So there's this idea of kind of like a bittersweetness and irony to that. But also like he was scared to come over to America right before he left Hong Kong. And I think a lot of people can kind of relate to just like having that fear and that anxiety before you go to a new place. It's not something that's just, a, I mean, it's obviously yeah, in the immigrant so. story that's important, but that's everywhere. Like before you yeah. go to college, you're going to have that anxiety. So people don't just think of Bruce Lee being an anxious person. And I think that when you kind of relate those really kind of little human elements, human stories, you can connect with someone more. And, and for me, like as an Asian American, 
telling the story of Bruce Lee is obviously like the huge weight on my shoulders. And I always approach my films like, how do I tell it that's honest and only in a way is my POV into something that seems so iconic and so vast. Um, and I thought about my parents' journey. Like my parents were Vietnamese war refugees. They, they left Vietnam, were out in the sea for two weeks and they lived in a Hong Kong refugee camp for six months. And then they came over to America in this very similar way that like Bruce Lee did, you know, having anxiety, going to a place where they don't have any connection. And, and so I, I use that as sort of a, a vessel into Bruce Lee's story and also the story of being Asian American. Cause I think Bruce Lee has been turned into this global cultural icon and he hasn't been seen as an Asian American. He's been seen, his success has been seen uh, sort of in, not, um, because of him being Asian American, it's, you know, in spite of that, it's, he, he, he was able to do it because he transcended his Asian Americanness. And that's not, for me, that's not true. Like you can see it in the film and the stories that he had to very much face up to those stereotypes and that, that racism um, that stemmed from centuries of how uh, the West has seen Asians. And mm -hmm. so, I thought that was all very important in, in, in how I viewed Bruce Lee's story. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. And I think what you did on Be Water is really amazing to have shown all that because I don't, like you said, I, I didn't even know that he was born in San Francisco. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was, uh, and you're again, like a more movie enlightening though. to me because like you wait, said, wait, you know, wait, how much do we know? Wait, of wait, him? wait, wait, Dave. You have you not seen uh, uh, Dragon? I did, but you know what's funny that um, it's the, they, you know that's when you watch. So I know the details kind of just fall through sometimes because you know uh, in my mind I keep keep thinking that he was born in Hong Kong, and I know he does go back because you know again uh, how I grew up with Bruce Lee was again uh, as an icon. You know he was a definitive representation of you know, uh, an Asian and he was in America and he made it in America and in Hong Kong. And, and for me, it's like, you know, that was that, he, you know, he's must be just from Hong Kong. I mean, that, that was, and I, for some reason, I just left that detail out that, you know, he was born in America before, you know, he became more international and, uh, you know, his, you know, his legacy was, as a martial artist, that that was it until you know I watched Be Water, and I learned so much more from that. I was, you know, at, at one point I was like thinking to myself, I'm I'm gonna learn way more on this documentary because I won't I won't you know everything that I learned before was about how he grew up in stardom, but I but the rare footage you got, I was amazed at him training outside with you know his you know and watching his you know, kids, you know, there was that footage. I'm not sure how that film was. Was it his wife uh, filming it all uh, with the eight millimeter camera? I mean, that was yeah. just great stuff. It was like so behind the scenes. And um, the struggle of, you know, maybe with many actors, how you, you know, deal with, you know, that kind of stardom and then you waiting, he's still waiting for a role. I mean, like all that time. And then he had to make money, I guess. and make other films, you know, or, or continue, uh, learning, uh, or, or making films outside of the U S system. 
Um, but this doc taught, taught me more of him, you know, becoming more of a, he is a teacher to me. I mean, like, I felt like he's had so much more philosophy here in this doc than any other documentaries. Like I said, you know, before we were talking about, like, most of the time I was learning about his death and I, and, and how he, you know, um, you know, became a star. But uh, now, you know, I think was he always had a philosophical way, but I feel like this one was more evident. I think, you know, Sung, I mean, you and I, I think we always, you know, uh, feel like he was a teacher, right? More than, you know, just an icon now because, you know, he... Well, it, I, I don't know because, you know, I, I, I've always kind of shunned away from any type of relation to like a martial artist. Like I said, you know, I, I made a conscious decision when I started acting that I would not be known for that. And even if I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm athletic and I can do many things, but I always tell people I don't do stunts. I don't know how to do that. I don't, I don't do martial arts. Even if I do it, I don't, I don't claim to do any of it because I don't want anything to do with Bruce Lee, his legacy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to shadow that, but it's interesting. Even the story is just the anecdote you just said that you know the the thing about bruce him waiting he does a film and then he's waiting and he's waiting you know it's like in in many ways like you know when i watch i would go back to listen to his black and white interviews and his perspective of you know, the perspective of what an asian male is in hollywood and you know what he's going to do um and then you know his whole journey as a actor and then within the hollywood system i think dragon did they touched upon maybe just on the surface his struggle as you know as a man just a purely a man then choosing to be an actor i could relate so much with that film you know dragon and also i know jason scully he's the reason and for anybody who doesn't know jason scully when bow referenced jason scully he's the actor that played bruce lee in the dragon film and i when I was in college, I started doing, taking, you know, acting seriously. I was doing theater. I was a political science major, but, you know, I never saw myself on screen and said that, yeah, there's a possibility to kind of make a living off of this, or there's potential to do something aside from martial arts or be the next Bruce Lee. And I saw Jason Scully in a movie called Map of the Human Heart. Mm. And... Yeah. Beautiful film. It was with yes. a French actress, um, La Femme Nikita actress, and then uh, and he played an Eskimo. But um, it was very, you know, it was pretty much like a Native American character. But then he played mm -hmm. from like eighty years old to when he was like you know, sixteen, and, mm -hmm. and he had such a range, and the the role was so three dimensional. And I was sitting there at the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco, yeah. and I had a job during the summer break, moving furniture. That's what I did. I could move people's furniture. And then my, my older brother kind of mentor knew I wanted to be an actor. And he, he got me this job at the moving uh, place. And then he took me to the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco and sat me down and said, you need to watch this guy. There's hope. And this film that I think nobody ever saw, Map of the Human Heart, gave me hope that, ooh, I don't have to do martial arts. And then Jason eventually played you know Bruce Lee within it, and so anyway, not to not to go on a segue of who Jason is, but he is actually the dude that I said, "Ooh, there's my face." It wasn't Bruce Lee. It was like, "Ooh, there's my face." And then I went to LA and I hunted him down. It took me about two years to find him. You know, I said, 
okay, I'm going to use Jason as a template. I, I need to find him and go, how did you get up there? How did you get this opportunity to play three-dimensional? How did you, where are you coming from? So I was doing extra work. I answered a, a ad in the Korean newspaper because I was working at a Korean restaurant and the cashier said, you want to be an actor? She saw an ad for Sencom Security. It was a Korean home alarm system with Peter Falk, Colombo. And they gave $30 a day to be a background extra, but I wanted to be around that real actor. So I went to ask Peter Falk questions. Never met him, never saw him. I was just like background. But I got to, I got to pick up this Haagen-Dazs uh, ice cream sticks that he had in his trailer because I had never been in a movie trailer or anything, actor's trailer. But anyway, the production manager there said he wanted to be an actor. And he said, and we were talking, and he was, Asian, he was Korean-American. He said that I know the teacher of Jason Scott Lee, and I'm going to go meet him tomorrow. And I begged him to take me along. I went and met the teacher that taught Jason Scott Lee and Dustin Nguyen. So the older brothers, the guys that were four to 10 years ahead of me that I looked up to, like Jason, you know, 20, I mean, uh, Dustin on 21 Jump Street was the first cool English speaking Asian dude to me that I ever saw on TV. You know, he wore the bracelets, he had the fashion, he had the hair. You know, I was like, what? You know, and, and he was, you know, he was just one of the gang, right? And I, he gave me hope. Um, and then with Jason, that film kind of like career possibility. And then the teacher that taught both of them, Sal Romeo, an Italian, Italian guy from Philly that, you know, is true method, Stanislavski, Meisner, um, uh, Stella Adler, Udo Hagen. He is, you know, he is the true act, you know, teacher when it comes to, you know, um, um, the, the 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 traditional way of teaching American film, TV, and theater acting, and I didn't know that Dustin and Jason came from such pedigree of training, and so I hunted those guys down, and then I I, I studied with Sal for like eight years before I, I even I, I got a job, you know. So anyway, I I just wanted to add to the Jason Scott at least during the sixty degrees of separation, and how I used Jason and Dustin's kind of, you know, tracks the, 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 the roads that they have already paid for me. And I was able to pick their brain. But then as I got older, I was like, how do I exist in, within the Hollywood system where Jason and Dustin couldn't answer those questions? And that's where I would refer to Bruce Lee. And that story that you're saying that he was waiting after, you know, he did Enter the Dragon. Or was it Enter the Dragon? Or after Fist Green of Hornet. Green Hornet. Yeah, Green Hornet. And not having an agent, not getting a call, you know, like worrying about how you're going to pay the bills. But then you have that hope that you're going to be allowed into the gates of the Hollywood studio system. And it's rejection, man. I do. It's, it's so many elements parallel. When after Fast Five Day, mm -hmm. I, you know, when I did Fast Five, I didn't have an agent, man. And after it came out, I didn't have an agent. And. I was in Universal, God bless Universal and Justin and Jeff Kirschenbaum. You know, they actually organized a screening at the DGA for me to invite like people in the industry and agents. Nobody came. Dude. Oh, nobody, nobody showed up. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. And I'm literally wandering, wandering around, like wandering around going, what am I going to do? How do I make a living? I thought, I thought, you know, after Fast 3, something would happen. Nothing. Mm. Fast 4, it's okay. Fast 5, like, 
So no, nobody even wants to represent you. Nobody even wants to come to a free screening. And the excuses were like, it's raining in LA or some shit like that. <laughs> oh God. Right? And then, but then I would go back to Bruce Lee's interview that he, I think it was in London, that black and white interview. And he was mm -hmm. talking about his struggle as an actor and his place in America as an Asian male. And it kind of settled me down. And it was like, all right, I can quit. And the thing that I took from Bruce was not the martial arts, was that there was a level, it wasn't arrogance, because I was old enough to see through that. I was like, is he arrogant and just being cocky? Is this posturizing? No, it's him convincing himself, because he's mm -hmm. so fucking scared that I'm, this is gonna be my fucking mantra. Yeah. Just do it, just go. And it's almost like, all right, I'm not the only one that went through this. And this dude, imagine at this time, at that time, with a little accent, all of it, what he had to do. And then he used, he had to use the martial arts as almost like the shield. It was his superpower, right. you know? And, I, and so I started understanding it and it started clicking. And I was like, oh, it's not about being apologetic, but it's not about being arrogant, it's humility. And also this whole thing about the uh, once upon a time in Hollywood scene with Bruce Lee, mm -hmm. you know, there was all that controversy. And when I looked at it, I understood both schools of thought, but then I looked at it and I was like, because we don't have the storyteller that comes from the place of what it feels like to be an Asian male or even a minority man, mm. you're gonna laugh, you almost, it's almost like you laugh at that. You laugh mm. at the, 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 the audacity that an Asian male would be self-confident. And that's mm. what affected me with that movie is, was the takeaway with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was not that, the martial arts or the fighting right it was really like now you don't even allow us to be confident and mm -hmm. you make it look like it's a bunch of bullshit like how about contextualize it you know mm -hmm. and and anyway so so i it think we went off conversation yeah we went off yeah. topic now, but, uh, <laughs> i mean before yeah, yeah. we go back yeah. on topic i just wanted <laughs> to like say like i mean it's, it's just this idea of like paying it forward i was also like a political science uh student like major in college at nyu and it wasn't until i saw movies like better luck tomorrow or like the motel even while i was at nyu mm -hmm. that i realized oh i can be a filmmaker because i always had that drive to be a filmmaker when i was younger mm -hmm. um but i never thought like my story was important enough to be shown on the big screen right the asian story is not important we don't deserve our space in on that kind of uh, uh, part of American culture. But then, yeah, I saw films like Better Luck Tomorrow, The Motel, and it, I saw myself, and especially like like Ernest's character in The Motel um, was like me. I mean, my mom owned a small business for a lot of the time. She was a single mom. So that was, that's still probably one of the most touching films, either Asian American or just general for me, just because I felt so much so connected to the, that character and also i mean your character sam in, in the motel uh song just like just being a badass asian american who's just like unapologetic and i think yeah it's i i just to say thank you and i'm grateful for having those type of stories early on when i was thinking like oh can i be a filmmaker oh thank you oh thank you Bal. that means so much I appreciate that well what and 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 your filmmaking, it's, you know, now uh, instead of uh, more 
instead of narratives, I mean, are you're, you're, you seem like you're more inclined to do, uh, documentaries. Is, would that, is that true or would that not be as... No, I uh, mean, for me, it's... I think of like stories as a, or like kind of mediums and formats as like a vessel to tell a story. So like, mm. what is the best vessel to tell this story? And yeah, I'm not, I don't want to be dogmatic about like only telling documentaries or only um, making documentaries or only making like uh, scripted projects. I think mm. for like for Be Water, I was, I wanted the most kind of, um, and I use the term like authentic and in, in a very light way. <laughs> um, I wanted Bruce Lee to be able to tell his own story and use his voice and being told by the people who knew him the best. So it's like a documentary is the way to go with the story. Um, not cause if, if you have someone playing Bruce Lee, I mean, that's already happened with dragon. It's you're, you're seeing his story through a certain filter. And I was like, if, if there's any filter, at least as a filter of the people who knew him the closest. Right. And I, I can't argue with that from a point of view, from a, um, from a point of authority, they, they have the authority more than anyone to tell the story other than Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am like in the future, like uh, I, I did happen to sign with an agent recently with CAA. So we've been like looking for scripted projects that help kind of reshape like what America means to Americans like ourselves instead of like the Americans that have been perpetuated for a long time or the idea of Americans. And yeah, I'm just, I'm excited by, you know, this privilege really to be able to, to pitch these type of stories um, uh, and, and to be able to tell them. And I think um, having like learned from Bruce Lee has been like the ultimate education. Like I've oh, been yeah. making this film for like five years from like the conception until our Sundance premiere and like you know the last two years have just been a deep dive into bruce lee and it's been uh i was like in a pretty dark place when i started like two years ago and just reading his philosophy going to like the family archive like going through his like daily planner and like touching his writing like the tactile quality of like you know this is a person who lived and like has these photographs and i think that's what i wanted to feel with this film too it's just like this is a life lived right before the myth started. And you're, cho- and you're choosing. Wait, 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 wait. I have to put this again. I know I'm going to forget it. I got the opportunities to see a handwritten letter from Bruce Lee. And it was, the letterhead was at a holiday inn. And it was, just, it was like, it was like Jim Carrey's like self written check to him that you know, for a million dollars. And it was a letter. Mm-hmm. One of his students had it, and I think Shannon gave it to you know his friend. But it was, I got to read it, and it had Holiday Inn. And it was Bruce Lee saying that I will be the first Asian you know movie star in Hollywood, and I'll you know make I'll be the highest paid and all that. And when I, when I was young and I read that, I was like, damn, this guy is like arrogant and cocky. And then as I got older, I understood what he's doing. You know, he's just. It's it's you know he, he it's it's just kind of like he's manifesting his own destiny. Yeah, it's like he's a self-actualization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's writing the narrative, and and that's what I do now. It's from that moment, I you know I save little documents. I date it. Like oh, this was who I met at this time, and then I just store it. So I put it in the box because I was like that letter inspired me so much. It was it kept me going, man. I was like oh, I'm just mm. about to quit, just about to. Can you read that? And you go ah. 
there's another somebody already went through this for me man and it's like and that's the mountaintop all right yeah. i'm willing to fight this fight you know so anyway sorry Continue. No, it's good to hear you know that kind of story because like I think we all kind of need it. I mean, it doesn't have to be acting; it can be in anything. You know, we do. You know, even being a father or being you know a husband or being a friend to somebody or being you know just a human being for that matter. I totally agree to that. You know that mode of thinking because you know, it, or else we just give up on life. I don't ha hate to be so dreary about it, but I feel like that's that's kind of you know, uh, true in many sense, but, um, but I, like, and like going back to your documentary, I, I really feel like the voice that Bruce Lee had, like he's very absolute, like everything's so absolute with him. I don't know if there was a really, I know there's moments of doubt, but when he has moments of doubt, he really does shine, you know? And, and I feel like, you know, he, he doesn't really, you know, he never gives up. That's the that's the thing that I've taken away from any of the documentaries I've seen of him. And well, what you know, what 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 aside from the uh, the martial arts discipline and that philosophy, do you guys think that or about what do you think that kept him going um, in terms of just like simple happiness? Like, did he have hobbies? You know, what do you, you know? Like, there was a scene in Dragon where he drove a Porsche Speedster. I think after he got Green Hornet, I'm wondering like. You know, what was he into? Was because I know he was friends with Steve McQueen, and I'm sure Steve McQueen, you know, gave him a high level of car IQ. You know, so you know, what do you know about it? Like, you know, yeah. So, I mean, one of the really great stories, or like just the kind of ideas of the film, is like seeing Bruce Lee as this like immigrant American, right? And one of the people we talked to was uh, one of his first friends in Seattle student of his, Leroy Garcia, who actually taught him how to drive. And because um, in Hong Kong, Bruce came from a relatively well-off family. So they actually had a chauffeur, which I mean, it sounds like very kind of uh, bougie, but you know, in, in, in Asia, it's kind of typical for a family to have a chauffeur. And uh, so he didn't know how to drive when he arrived into America. And that was one of the things that he wanted to learn the most. Um, and that's how he got introduced to America in many ways, is Leroy teaching him how to drive. So Leroy had a, a Fiat. Um, and so Bruce Lee, can you imagine Bruce Lee driving around in a little Fiat in Seattle cool. in the early 1960s? That's so cool. Um, but yeah, he, I mean, he really loved to drive that car. And I think it became an aspirational thing for him, you know, for many immigrants who come over to America who've never driven. And that, that becomes like the status symbol, this idea that you've made it, that you've kind of reached your American dream. And uh, I think he, he eventually, Bruce Lee eventually bought like a, a 56 Ford um, and he thought it was a Cadillac, which, uh, which, which Leroy always laughs about. Um, <laughs> but, so yeah, I think, yeah, over time you see like the moments in his life where he is successful and he uh, gets gets you know a better car. And when he was in Hong Kong, he had like he got a Mercedes like 350 SL. And then right before, this is kind of like a bit bittersweet, but right after Enter the Dragon like finished shooting and he was just anticipating how big it was, he bought like a Rolls Royce um, uh, Corniche, right? And there's a photo of him looking at the car like that's about to be sent to him, right? Like 
just like a, maybe a few months before he passed away. And he was, it was supposed to be delivered. You know, he was supposed to pick it up like right before he died. And, um, and it's, yeah. yeah, there's just like kind of ideas of like dreams unrealized and, and maybe like through his cars, you can kind of see that how, like the progression of, of his ambition and his realization of like how he wanted to be successful. Um, and it's important to know he was also like, a, he played a chauffeur on Green Hornet, right? right? And yeah. it, w- it was like a Chrysler Imperial Crown, I think it was, that he was driving for, for um, Green Hornet. But yeah, I think it's always interesting to see like the mythology of cars in a way. To be honest, like I've only owned a car when I was like living in, in Maryland, D.C. right before college. I moved to New York and then, you know, in New York, you don't really need a car. And from then on, I would just have cars when I was traveling. I, I mean, I love driving. I love going to like a new country and just like driving in the open road and just seeing that culture, like seeing uh, the beauty of a, of a country um, through driving through it. And just like also kind of car culture, just like driver culture and how that kind of distinguishes the country from from each other. Um, but I, I do love the aspirational idea of, of having a car like my dad also had a Mercedes, you know, SL. And I think I was like, what is it with Asians like of maybe that age that think about <laughs> Mercedes SL and like the aspirational quality of it? And uh, I mean, yeah, I don't I mean, know. I'm, well, I great- I'm looking for a car too now, moving on. <laughs> Should I get also get a Mercedes SL? Like an old school one from like the 80s? Well, there's a great quote a friend told me the other day about cars because I was asking them why are these old guys keep trying to like you know buy the cars that they were into when they were 16 in high school that, you know, these aspirational cars and he said well you know man you know, man is always running away from you know his, uh, man is always chasing his youth through his cars right and so the older you get more successful in the money so you can buy new parts and you can keep the car alive and, it, it, and you can say, Ooh, I, I wanted that, you know, 68 Mustang in high school and now I'm making the money. And, w- and when I was that age, I dreamt of being Steve McQueen. So you get it. So you're chasing that. And then even the Rolls Royce, it's amazing because that's like the highest level of car you can go probably, you know, even now it's like, that's, that's the bar when it comes to luxury vehicle. That's the whole idea of Rolls Royce, right? That's why they exist. And for <laughs> Bruce Lee to go to that and to order one in that time, he knew he was the king or well, Kings and royalty or drug dealers drive that car. That's it. You know, that's it. You know, Kings rappers, movie stars and, and, and drug dealers. So he was at the top of the mountain. And it's interesting where, you know, you're right, man. The timeline of the cars that he chose from Fiat to Rolls Royce, what a massive jump. You know, it's amazing to, to see that and the attachment of how cars really signify where a person is in their life and what they're into, right? The fact that you're in New York, you can't have a car. And if you did have one, I would know you're a serious car dude, right? Like, you know, because it's like having a horse in the city. It's the same thing, right? So, um, what does it say yeah, about me if I want my I want the Herbie the Herbie car, as I <laughs> well that that represents everything about you, Dave, because it, you're, that's what you're I want. Fun, you're all of your cinephile. 
you love you love history, you love kids, you love your family. So that's the perfect car for you. Oh, you know? perfect! I yeah. then then I'll then I will I will make that my goal in the next five years when I have a midlife crisis. <laughs> that's awesome. I wonder about where these cars are now. You know, it would be cool if we could do. You know, eventually, you know, if there could be a exhibit based on cars and Bruce Lee's timeline, right? And his life and like what cars signified the time in his life. And, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where the cars are anymore. I mean, I think with Bruce Lee, there has been like, in some ways, kind of a lack of archival, um, not to say, you know, Shannon and the family have a, have a pretty extensive archival, but like Bruce Lee's like house in, in Hong Kong, the last place that he lived is being torn down right now. Oh. It used to be a love motel for a long time too. It wasn't like what? preserved as Bruce wow. Lee's house. And um, yeah, so if they're not gonna preserve something that is actually like very marketable, like his house, I think his car is probably <laughs> some person driving around not knowing that they're, you know, driving Bruce Lee's car. Yeah. Is that the one in the documentary where he's playing outside? And Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 So I have a final question for you, Val. If you were to do a documentary today about the current events of the whole COVID, what angle would you take? You know, and you're, you're living through it. You know, and as a storyteller, as a person that can control the messaging at the end of the day with your work and your art, like, what story would you tell? What perspective would you come from? Just curious. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard because we're still in the middle of it. So I haven't had kind of an opportunity to kind of step back and see what happens um, and how it, you know, the dust ultimately settles with COVID. I think about my first week in, or my second week in New York City was September 11th. And that was really formative for me and formative of how I viewed New York especially how New York reacted to it. And, and in a way, my entry point into Los Angeles is COVID on top of, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, America. And I'm always interested, like, our house is burning, right? But how do we, how do we help lay the bricks to rebuild it? Like, not the people who are typically rebuilding these things, who are gonna shape the society and create this foundation of what they, you know, the old America is like, I, I see an opportunity to like, even in this really dark time in America, like where, yeah, things have just completely, you know, disintegrated in many ways. And not to, you know, I, I also am very empathetic and sympathetic to like, people who've lost so much and I don't want to think I'm trying to trivialize this idea of like, okay, well, this is an opportunity for us to rebuild. But if we're going to kind of look forward, like how do we rebuild a more just world? How we've kind of like laid everything out with COVID in terms of systemic, not just systemic racism, but just prejudice and just like how poorly, you know, how badly broken the system is. So I want to see like that step, that, part of, of, of this, um, of this event of, pan, of this pandemic, like what are, how are we going to rebuild it? 
what are the what are the what's the groundwork that we're putting in and is it going to be sustained or is it just going to be something in passing and, and I, yeah it, it's kind of a broad idea right yeah. now but i just like yeah. how can we like take it take the situation take this moment in history and learn from it and like create like a, a blueprint for how we respond and how we take care of each other afterwards like I, I think of myself when I'm making films, especially films about real people, that I'm not just telling a story, but I'm a caretaker of someone's story. So how are we going to be the caretakers of each other after COVID, after all this settles? And uh, and I would kind of, yeah, love to see that as, as a film, as, as a story that can be aspirational, but doesn't shy away from the darkness that we're facing. That's great. That's yeah, great. I would like, I definitely I'd watch love that. to see that. Yeah. And I think a story like that would be in great hands from, from a filmmaker like yourself, Val. Wow. So thank, thank you, you so much. Son. Yeah. Well, all right. You know, I, um, I think we thank you for joining us today. This was a great yeah, thank conversation. You. Yeah. Um, this, I could talk to you all day and um, I look forward to meeting you in person, man. And, and yeah. when this is all over, since you're in LA. Um, all right, Bao. Thank you so much. You be safe out there. All right. And, appreciate uh, you guys. Hope you guys are all and your loved ones are safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay. Talk to you soon. All right. And all everybody, right. watch Be Water. Where can we watch this? Where can people watch this, Bao? It's on ESPN Plus. So if you don't have a subscription to ESPN Plus, it's $5. You know, pull the Asian hustle, just buy it, and then cancel it afterwards. Um, it's also on <laughs> Amazon, too. So. He's got the way. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you again. All right. All right. Thank you See so you guys. much. All right. Thanks for tuning in to Sung's Garage. And a huge thanks to Bao Nguyen for taking the time out to talk with us about his amazing documentary, Be Water. Again, you can view Be Water on ESPN+, Amazon, and various special screenings online. And hopefully we can grab some food in L.A. once this pandemic is over. As always, let's all continue to stay indoors if possible and stay safe during these tough times. For all those medical first responders who are essential people helping, I truly send my thanks to all of you. All right, y'all be good. It's time to give a shout out to all the people that made Songs Garage possible. we got producers Anson Ho, Sal Gatula, Gary Lee, Aaron Strongoni, we got music by the one and only talented Lyrics Born. And we got food, catering, and hugs and love by Mickey M. All right. Thank you very much. And also, all of you guys that are listening. Till next time. Peace out. See you at Sun's Garage.